1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the New Testament uh, Scripture. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. In the last several weeks, we have looked at uh, the characteristics of the evangelism and discipleship of the Thessalonian believers uh, that Paul records for us in 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2. Last week, if you remember, we looked at four commitments that we must have to disciple others for the glory of God. We said this is our mission statement as a church. Colonial Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel of grace. And if we're going to disciple others through the gospel of grace, we'll have to demonstrate these four commitments. The first was a mother-like care followed by workmanlike labor. It's not easy. It's hard to disciple others in their walk with God. Third, Christ-like character. And fourth, and finally, father-like instruction. Um, it's been my prayer through this last week that God would have stirred your heart to disciple someone. And I trust that by this point, hopefully you've kind of zeroed in on someone that God wants you to disciple for the glory of God. And uh, I trust and pray that God has given you grace to do that. So we come to the end of chapter 2. Uh, we see that Paul is thankful for something else. It's related to the evangelism and discipleship of the Thessalonians, but I would call it their faithfulness. And the reason I think that he's talking about faithfulness is because there are a lot of words, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, through 3.13, so 2.13 through 3.13, that talk about the faith or the belief of the Thessalonian church. So, for instance, look in your Bible at chapter 3. I just want to point out a few of these. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Keyword faith. Look at verse 5, middle of the verse. I sent to learn about your faith. Look at verse 6, middle of that verse. And has brought us the good news or the gospel of your faith. Look at verse 7, end of that verse. We have been comforted about you through your faith. And then look at the end of verse 10. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Catch the theme here? Not to be, you know, it's blatantly obvious. It's almost like it's bold and underlined. What well, is in my Bible? I've underlined it and circled it. Paul is talking specifically about the faith or the faithfulness of the Thessalonian believers. He's thanking God for it. And so over the course of the next several sermons, we're going to zero in on what Paul has to say about the faithfulness of this little group of disciples of Jesus Christ in the city of Thessalonica. And as we look at their faithfulness and we consider that, it's my prayer, that God will enable us to be faithful like them. Okay, so over the course of the next four sermons I I have with you, um, I want to talk about the faithfulness of the Thessalonians and the nature of it. I think that Paul describes marks of their faithfulness, the evidence of it, how he knew they were being faithful. Then he talks about the adversary to their faithfulness. The end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, he talks about Satan, the great adversary. matter of fact, tonight we're going to talk about Satan, and it's going to be a very important text and topic for our church to consider, the opponent of our faithfulness. Then chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, he talks about the results of their faithfulness, what God was producing because they had been faithful. And so this morning, we're going to start this study 
by looking at the marks of faithfulness in verses 13 through 16. And this is very important study for us. This sermon, these sermons are vital because in them we are dealing with the very nature of a faithful Christian life. You ever wondered what it looks like to be a faithful Christian? Well, from Paul's perspective, we're going to see some marks of that here. Perhaps you're here today and you are a new Christian. And you are wondering, what does God want from me? I've heard amazing stories. One person I just talked to yesterday, a 78-year-old man, just came to saving faith in Jesus Christ through a testimony of our assembly and some family who ministered the gospel to him. Heard of a, a, a woman not too long ago, saved in a Bible study. Result of some of the faithful ministers. So perhaps you're like that. Perhaps you're here today and you're a new Christian. You say, I want to know what it looks like. Perfect. Listen carefully. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not saved, but I'm considering it. I'm thinking about it. I'm looking into this. I know some people like this here today as well. And I say, if you pay attention to this text, you will see what God can do with you. If you will simply repent of your sin and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to save you. This is what God can do with you, too. Perhaps you're here today and you've been saved for a while, but God has recently got your attention. He's got a way of doing that, doesn't he, folks? Got your attention through a loss, through an accident, through something like that. So you've been asking, what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Christ? They say, great, pay attention. Next four sermons, don't miss them. Take notes, listen. Or maybe it is that you're here today and you're not really concerned at all about what Christian faithfulness looks like. It's been my prayer this week. You've been on my radar. It's been my prayer that God will shake you, that he will break through your crusty, hardened exterior and take his word like a scalpel and cut into your heart to expose the hardness of your heart so that in his goodness and grace you will turn to him. Today in our study we look at these first four verses. Look at verse 13. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to this text today, I pray that your spirit would work in a way that we would not be able to explain. I pray that you'd break hardened hearts. I pray that you would um, 
make alive people who are dead in sins. If there's someone who doesn't know Christ here today, I pray that you'd encourage new believers, encourage faithful believers, and teach them how they might even grow in their faith more. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray that you would do this work in our lives through the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Verses 13 through 16, in my opinion, are about the marks of faithfulness that Paul saw in the Thessalonian believers. And I think that there are two of them that he focuses on. So two-point sermon today. Two marks of faithfulness. Mark number one is, is found at the beginning of verse 13. Matter of fact, almost all the verse to the last phrase. And I would summarize it this way. The first mark of a faithful Christian is that they gladly receive the word. That they gladly receive the word. Look, look again at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. In verse 13 here, Paul uses two nearly synonymous terms to describe the way the Thessalonian church, the Thessalonian believers first responded to the preached word of God, the proclaimed word of God to them. It says that they received it and accepted it. Again, nearly synonyms, that means that they took it in and embraced it, or they approved of the message that Paul proclaimed to them. I want you to notice in verse 13 here, specifically in your Bibles, what they received. So you look down in your Bible, what was it that they received? So, well, that's easy. It says the word of God. But let's get a little bit more specific than that because the text does. The word of God which was heard. Now, that last phrase could be translated the word of hearing or the heard word. Okay, and I want to tell you what I think that this is in reference to. As a messenger of an important communication, let's imagine I've got an important message from a king. There are different ways that I can communicate that to people. I can write down the words and give them to you or to others. The words would then be written. And sometimes Paul the apostle and the other apostles did this. They wrote the words of God for people. This is what we call the written word of God, okay? But I might also communicate God's words to you in a different way. I could communicate it orally through speaking to you, okay? And sometimes Paul did this too. Paul delivered God's words to others in that form. I'll call this the preached word of God. So you've got the written word of God, the preached word of God where he would comment on God's written word and shed light on the needs of humanity and shed light on the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it's important for people. So in this passage, as we're looking at verse 13, Paul says that it was the word that they heard. What do you think he's talking about? The written word or the proclaimed word? I think it's the proclaimed word of God. Okay, so it's this word of hearing, the preached word of God. And then Paul continues by describing exactly how they received it. They accepted it as revelation that came from God to them. 
See, when the Thessalonian believers first heard Paul opening up his mouth and proclaiming the word of the Lord, they did not minimalize it. They did not dismiss it. That's just the words of some short little apostle or a strange man. They maximalized it. They said, that is word from God himself, the proclaimed or preached word of God. We see how the way they respond. And I think this sort of reception must have been very encouraging to Paul. Actually, I think we know that he was encouraged because the text says that he constantly gave God thanks for the way they responded. Ever had the opportunity to preach or proclaim the scriptures and people actually respond in good ways. I mean, it's just so encouraging to hear or see how God could use us as sinful, weak human vessels. So Paul's constantly thanking God for the way they respond. As a matter of fact, later on in the Thessalonian epistles, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. He prays, I think, that God would continue this same sort of work. He actually asked the Thessalonians to pray for this. 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Got it? It says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. I love the words speed ahead. It could be translated that it might run. Thessalonian believers, would you pray for us that God would use our ministry and that through us the word of the Lord might run, might spread out and be honored. So he asked this church to pray for what God had done among them. And so as we think of application, uh, our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 talks about the way that Paul preached and the way the Thessalonians received God's word. So to go back to our text, I want you to consider this for a moment, this one question. It's a complicated question I have for you, but but do you know this? Do you know that to the extent that I get this, or that any pastor or teacher here gets this, the word, and understands it, And to the extent that I would communicate it to you, clearly. And to the extent that you would read it or or hear it and understand it, or listen the way the Thessalonians did, you will not hear the voice of a man. You will hear God's revelation. Have you ever heard someone speak from God's word clearly or accurately before and felt that God was speaking directly to you through the preaching or the teaching of Scripture? That's because there's power in these words. It's truly amazing, brothers and sisters. And sisters. And as I considered that this week, I thought, oh, man, oh, the awesome weight of preaching the Word. No wonder the Scriptures say, Let not many of you become teachers, for you will be judged more strictly. Oh, the awesome weight of proclaiming the word, but oh, the awesome weight of hearing the preached word of God. There's a wonderful Old Testament passage that talks about the sort of old covenant person that God Uh, delights in. I want to ask you to turn there for a second. Isaiah 66. 
Isaiah 66. This is a very important words of prophecy. 66 chapters Isaiah gives us in this crowning chapter, uh, verses 1 and 2. It gives this important lesson for the Israelite people as he's wrapping up this prophetic utterance. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, we learn about the sort of person with whom God was pleased in the Old Covenant. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Ready? He who is humble and contrite in spirit. The word contrite in spirit means broken down or beaten down in spirit. And then he continues, and the one who trembles at my word. And so I, I say, men and women, about us at Colonial, may it be true in our Christian experience as New Covenant believers in this church that when listening to preaching, that we would enter a world in which God speaks to us through the proclaimed word of God. You see, faithful Christians gladly receive the word preached accurately as words from God himself. Yet some people hear the word every week and they do so without listening or as if they're listening to the bumbling words of some fool. They give no weight to it. They hear but do not gladly receive the word of God. And so I pray to God for us. Oh, God, please help them. Help people like this for your own glory so that their worship every Sunday is not vain emptiness or dead orthodoxy, but living, growing faith. God, would you do this for us here? So I ask you to go back uh, to chapter two, and we'll go through the second mark here. The first mark is that they gladly receive the preached word of God. Mark two is that they gladly faced affliction for Christ. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 13, the end of the verse. And uh, I'll read these verses for us one last time. Verse 13, right at the very end, this preached word, which is at work in you believers. For your brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that uh, are in Judea. For you suffered the same things of your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. I want you to notice the first part of this section, the end of verse 15, it says, which is at work in you believers? I think it's wise for us to first ask who or what was at work in the Thessalonian believers and uh, for sake of time, uh, I'll simplify. It could either be God or the Word of God, and I think it's very similar. I think it's probably best to see this as God was at work in them through His Word. See, God's Word is not effective, it, ineffective. It will accomplish its purposes 
It will fulfill his plans. Think of Isaiah 55, if you know that passage. It will accomplish his purposes. And so the word was still at work in the Thessalonian believers when Paul wrote this letter to them. Been a year or two before he planted the church, and they're glad to receive the word. But then at the end of verse 13, the thing he's thankful for is that it's still working. That preached word of God is still running. Still running in the Thessalonian community. And then he explains how he knows that to be true. That's verses 14 through 16. Well, how do you know that that proclaimed word you gave back then is still working? And his evidence is because you have become faithful followers in the midst of suffering affliction for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so I'll just summarize for you verses 14 through 16. The gospel was effective in Thessalonica because the church had become imitators of the churches of Judea, Paul says. And they were imitators of a certain kind in that they had suffered of their own countrymen like the Jewish believers had. I want to point out just a few things to you, and then we're going to take a little side trail into another book. Uh, First, Judea. Judea is the region including and surrounding the city of Jerusalem. I hope you know this from Bible study. If not, you've got the city of Jerusalem. It's in the center. And Judea is the province around it. Okay? The believers in Judea, in that province around, in and around Jerusalem, had suffered many persecutions for Christ. Okay? So keep your finger here in 1 Thessalonians. Go with me over to Acts for a second. We're going to look at two passages there in Acts. Okay, I want to show you first, the Judean believers, people from Judea, had suffered greatly. Look in your Bibles at Acts 8. And and really, you could look at many places in the first part of Acts, but Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, I just want you to see this. Here they suffered the hands of an evil man by the name of Saul, who later becomes Paul and writes this about the Judean brothers suffering. Look at Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in where? Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I probably didn't need to read that, but I just love that verse. Okay, so you see this great persecutor Saul. What's he doing? He's ravaging. He's dragging off, and they're being scattered in Jerusalem and Judea. Now, go over to Acts 17. You're in Acts, not too far. Go over to Acts 17. And I want, you, I want you to hear a little bit about the birth of a small church in the city of Thessalonica, the one to which Paul later will write a letter called 1 Thessalonians. He's describing the birth of this church. He look, look at verse 5, Acts 17, 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. I love the King James, some uh, was it certain fellows of the, no, lewd fellows of the baser sorts. That's the verse I memorized years ago when I was young. 
some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked. Sound like persecution? Attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not found them, find them, they dragged, same word as in Acts 7 about Judea, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. See, the Thessalonian believers endured their own affliction at the hands of these agora men, these wicked men of the rabble who hung out in the marketplace and stirred up persecution against Paul and some of the early brothers. And I think this persecution continues even after Paul leaves the city. But to really fully grasp what verses 14 through 16 are about, I ask you then, go back to 1 Thessalonians 2. We're just going to take a quick pass through, and I want to answer a few questions from this text with you. Okay, I've got three questions. We'll, we'll move quickly. I've got three questions, five minutes, no problem. Question number one. What Jewish persecution is Paul describing throughout the end of this passage? That's one of the questions we have to consider. What Jewish persecution? Okay, because he says, okay, you've suffered from your own countrymen, but then he describes a few things about these, this wicked Jewish persecution of believers. He says that they were the ones, Jews were the ones who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. The word prophets here I think could describe either New or Old Testament prophets or all of the above, the Jewish people he's considering as a whole. Uh, those who had disobeyed God during his generation, generations before, had killed the prophets that God had sent to them. They had also killed the Lord Jesus. That's very specific. The people uh, who, the Jewish leadership who was in play in Jerusalem when Jesus was killed. He then says, and they drove us out. I think us here is Paul and the other apostles, and he's describing the fact that, you know, in, in multiple cities that he went to, I mean, whether he was in Thessalonica or Berea or in Corinth or in uh, other cities in Jerusalem, he was often driven out by wicked Jewish people who did not want to hear his message. They're a continual thorn in his side as an apostle. He describes these Jewish people as they did not please God. Their actions were completely contrary to God's will, and they, that they were hostile to the rest of humanity. They're standing in opposition to all the other people in the world, and they're doing this by showing hostility toward humanity, by hindering Paul from speaking to the Gentiles. If you want to look in our text and say, well, what exact persecution is he describing here? That's as specific as this text gets. Okay, so you're looking down in your Bibles, uh, in verse uh, 14, for you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things of your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out, displeased God, opposed all mankind. How are, they dis how are they opposing all mankind? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. These Jewish people who were to be a light to the world for the gospel, of Yahweh are hindering Paul from speaking to Gentiles so that they might be saved. But then six, Paul concludes that they fill up the measure of their sins. You see that phrase? That 
is very strong graphic language. In a sense, I think Paul is saying something like, the Jews have met the quota of their sins. It's as as if there is a specific amount of sin that God would not tolerate from these Jewish people, and Paul's announcing they have reached the limit. The imagery here might be of a cup that is filling up with liquid, slowly filling up with water until it gets to the brim and begins to spill over. That's the sins of the Jewish people during Paul's day. Each time the Jews sins, they they came closer and closer to the total number of sins necessary to bring the wrath of God. I find the language here quite similar to uh, a a passage back in Genesis. It's actually, actually just one verse that talks about the Amorite people. You don't have to turn there, but you could write down Genesis 15, 16. Genesis 15, 16 where the author says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Hear that phrase, the iniquity of the Amorite people is not yet complete. In the Old Testament text, God is not quite ready to judge the Amorites because they had not yet exceeded the amount of sin that would bring his judgment upon the entire nation. The Jews, however, in this passage were not repentant about persecuting the prophets and killing Jesus and driving out Paul and hindering him. So Paul announces they've reached the limits so that God's wrath has come upon them. You see the last phrase of verse 16 there? The wrath of God, but, but wrath has come upon them at last. It's like an, it's an exclamation from Paul. And so that leads us to our second question. What wrath is he talking about here? Or when did this wrath come upon them? And I, uh, there are a, a few things we could talk about, but for sake of time, I, I would say I think it is probably a combination of God's past physical wrath upon some Jewish people and his past rejection of them as a Jewish or as a nation. This wrath of God could be in reference to God's physical judgment on the Jewish people. In particular, as I was studying this week, just historically, there were three moments of great divine judgment on the Jewish people just before Paul writes this letter. In, uh, he writes this letter in probably 50, 51 A.D., just four or five years before this. There was a terrible famine in Judea, which led to severe hunger, nourishment, and death by starvation for many people. Four or five years before Paul writes this, people don't have food in Judea. Jews don't have food in Judea, and many of them die. We're also aware of a a terrible massacre that occurred among the Jewish people in Jerusalem in 49 AD. There was a, a ruler who came in just one year before Paul writes this letter. And he comes into Judea and he massacres 20 to 30,000 Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. 
See what I'm wrestling with here? What, what does Paul mean when he says, but God's wrath has come on them at last? Could be this terrible massacring of the Jewish people. Could be in reference to the persecution and the expulsion of Jews from Rome in 49 AD, one year before he writes this, the Edict of Claudius comes and all the Jews are deported out of Rome. Or more likely, it might be that plus something. I think that when Paul says God's wrath has come on them at last, I think he might be talking about God's former rejection of the Jewish people. See, sometimes when you read your Bible, you find the, the term the wrath of God, and you see that it's not just always about physical punishment. Sometimes it's about spiritual punishment more than physical. Sometimes the wrath of God is associated with his rejection of a people or giving them up. So we won't turn to Romans 1, but many of you know that text where it says that the wrath of God comes down upon people who continually are rejecting him. And the way God's wrath comes is the text says God gave them over. Three times, gave them over, gave them over, then gave them up. And there are other texts as well in the New Testament, like Romans 9 through 11, which, which seem to indicate that there came a, a time around this time, around the life of Christ, where God turns his attention and his focus and his blessing off of the people, the nation of Israel, for their constant rejection of him, and opens it up to the Gentiles. And so it's possible here that the subjection to God's wrath means God's blinding, the spiritual perception to Israelite people so that salvation could come to the Gentiles. God turned his wrath against those who rejected him. The Jews had gone over the limit, and they were already experiencing the wrath of God. But that leads us to one final question today, and that is, what is the main point of this passage, verses 13 through 16? I think the main idea is that Paul saw evidence of the Thessalonians' faithfulness. Their faith was clear in his eyes because these people gladly faced affliction for Christ's name even when the affliction was coming from their own countrymen. And so I ask you, I said today, there are two marks of being a genuine or faithful follower of Jesus. I ask you, how about you? Do you bear these marks? Has the word of God penetrated deep into your soul so that you have courage to, to face affliction for Christ? at work, in your family, extended family? Do you stand in your faith and proclaim your allegiance to Christ? For faithful Christians gladly face affliction for Christ, even if it comes from their friends and family, or own countrymen, even if it comes at work, on the job, from the guy in the bunk right next to you, or the desk right beside you, or the shop right next to you, do you gladly receive the preached word 
and do you gladly face affliction for Christ? Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this passage, I'm thankful for the testimony of the Thessalonians. There was a joyful reception of the Word of God as it was proclaimed or preached to them. And Father, there was evidence that your Word continued to do its work in their life. And the evidence, Lord, was that they stood. They stood. And so, Father, I come before you today as pastor, one of the pastors of this church, and I just ask that you would give strength and resolve to our members. Lord, many of our members face daily decisions at work. Whether they will stand for you or whether they will be silent. And I pray, Father, that they would be faithful. I pray that they would give evidence to their faith, like the Thessalonians. And that they would be willing to stand for you, stand for the name of Jesus, even if it means affliction at work. There are some within our church family who, in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it meant that they would be rejected by their family. It meant that their family would look at them as being strange or deceived or odd. And in some cases, Lord, they're members of our assembly who have stood faithfully to proclaim that they are indeed believers in Jesus Christ and have faced persecution and affliction from their family. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them today. Would you help them to see that there are other believers throughout time who've bared the same sort of things. There have been men and women who have been attacked there are people like this man named Jason in Thessalonica who was dragged off. And Father, there were people who endured much worse than that. There are Christians who were faithful to the end, who were dragged off and beaten or killed for the name of Jesus Christ. May that testimony encourage us as we endure any affliction for the name of Christ in our world. There are men and women who in their workplace uh, this week, if they will stand for the integrity of Jesus Christ and the fact that they love him and are followers of him, that they will endure some sort of persecution or trial. Lord, give them grace, give them strength, help them to know that this is part of your call. And Lord, I pray that the marks of genuine followers of Jesus Christ would be evident in our church this week. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.